0: Let me see your hands, there it is, enthusiasm, I love it. Well we had a great day in the Lord yesterday and I, I just, I can't thank you enough for all the encouragement and the personal words that a lot of you have shared with me, it just means a lot, I'm enjoying being here and uh, just getting to hang out with, uh, with your pastor a little bit and get caught up and uh, I just appreciate him so much and Miss Renee hosting me and, and, uh, and so many of you I've been able to reconnect with. Uh, the Bolins are here tonight, and uh, the the first year we came, or the the second time we came in 2003, we brought our RV. We were living on our RV full time in 2003. Uh, that was our house, and uh, we backed it in there in in a little driveway. The little house they, they had, I think it was a an in-law house or something like that. It wasn't your house, and uh, so I told Greg, I said, my first landlords I ever had in Camden are here tonight, uh, but it was rent free, so that was. Uh, Good, but old friends and uh, old friends, and and uh, some are getting older and older. But anyway, uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive in tonight again, back into the kingdom of God. If you're, uh, how many of y'all were here last night? Let me just see your hands. All right, thank you for coming back again tonight. If you if you uh, if, if the folks were here that were here last night and didn't come back tonight and they only they only heard half a sermon. All right, hopefully they're watching online. But we're gonna we're gonna get back into it tonight. We're gonna ask the Lord's help to do so and uh, one of the greatest topics we can cover, one of the greatest teachings we can look into and I believe one of the keys to reviving God's church is a restoration of a kingdom mentality. I believe that. And I believe that that's gonna be a catalyst for us even this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every person who's in this room. I know that a lot of them had battles today and discouragements today and some uh, adversities today. Mondays can be tough, especially in this old world. But Lord, I thank you that in spite of that, uh, they've prioritized being here tonight, and I know that you're gonna honor that. And Father, I pray you continue to unfold truth to our heart. I pray that the Spirit of the living God would supersede my words and that you would speak to us and we would get a word from God tonight. Maybe just one great nugget, something that's catalytic in our own lives, our own walks with Jesus tonight, remind us of some things teach us some things, encourage us in some things, and may we think about all things kingdom. Lord, we love you, we thank you, that we are citizens of a greater land and a greater place than anything we're in right now. We thank you, Lord, that before we're even Americans, Lord, we are kingdom people. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you you know, if if you were to poll Baptists and you were to say, what was the primary message of Jesus? Matter of fact, if you were to go to Christians of any denomination and say, what was the primary message of Jesus, you'd get a lot of different answers. Some people would say, well, it's got to be love. I mean, if anybody is known for love, it's Jesus. And so surely he preached often on love. I mean, Jesus preached on love all the time, didn't he? But if you look in the synoptic gospels, the synoptics, meaning where the gospels are different and where they align, you only see that Jesus preached or dealt with the topic of love two times in the Synoptic Gospels. Somebody might say, well, it's the church. I mean, Jesus was getting ready to launch the church, and he's trying to get his disciples to be the church, and he certainly wanted people to to, to get into church, and so Jesus was all about the church. But if you look through the Gospels in the Synoptics, you see that Jesus only preached on the subject of the church three times. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus touches on the kingdom 134 times in the Gospel. I don't know about you, but I believe we ought to major where Jesus majors. We ought to emphasize what Jesus emphasized, and Jesus emphasized kingdom. Now, we've been robbed of kingdom. We've been sleight of hand distracted from kingdom. Satan has fought kingdom ever since the birth of the church. And many of God's people that have been saved a long time, I found, are much like me that just, I just, for a long time, I didn't see kingdom. I didn't understand kingdom. I didn't fully comprehend kingdom, and I'm still working on it. I, I believe we've many times missed kingdom, but I know this after reading the word. Jesus ain't hiding his kingdom. <laughs> I remember my, my nanny, she went on to be with Jesus. Uh, now, she wasn't my nanny. She was my grandmother, but we called her nanny. And she died in 2008 at the ripe old age of 96 years old. And as she was getting older in years, now, now it, it began to be there was something very important to the family. Namely, see, nanny was known... And, and, and almost famous for her baked macaroni and cheese. I'm talking about unbelievable. I, the family got together. I mean, that dish would be the empty dish first. Nanny's baked macaroni and cheese. Man, she knew how to do it. She cooked the noodles not too al dente and not too mushy, and she had that just the right blend of cheeses all throughout, and she'd bake it, you know, baked macaroni and cheese. I'm talking about a nice, thick layer of cheese all across the top you gotta spoon in real good before you put it on your plate. Crusty, just just enough across the top. And so 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 the family got to thinking about this. You know, Nanny's getting older and and her health is starting to fail, and she's gonna be with Jesus before too long. And when she goes to heaven, she's gonna take that macaroni and cheese recipe with her. And so at one of our last family get-togethers with Nanny, we'd all finished eating, you know, and had a big old feast, and that that macaroni and cheese dish was empty and Nanny was sitting in the big recliner as she always did and the family was gathered around chatting and started to get kind of quiet in the room. Then The spokesman cousin among us began to inch her chair closer to Nanny's. Said, Nanny, I wanna talk to you about something on behalf of the family. We, we love you and we're glad you're here still with us as old as you are and we just gotta be honest. You know, we're not rushing you but we know you're, you're gonna be in heaven before too long. And it's a concern of ours that once you're gone, that for us and our children and our children's children, that we're able to pass on the legacy of Nanny's wonderful, heavenly, God sent macaroni and cheese. So Nanny, would you do the honor, please? Would you do it? Would you share with us, before it's too late, your secret recipe for your macaroni and cheese? Well, Nanny got a big grin on her face and looked in all the pleading eyes of her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And then she just got raw. She got real. She got honest. She leaned forward. She said, come here. And we all leaned in, and she said, macaroni and cheese. She said, it's the recipe printed on the back of the Mueller's noodle box. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't hiding. (laughs) You just didn't know where to look. I'm going to tell you, that's how the kingdom is. Listen, Jesus ain't hiding his kingdom. We just didn't know where to look. It's been on the box the whole time. Matter of fact, Jesus put it first. What did we talk about last night? We talked about that. I've got to go the right direction, Scott. we got to go. It was the first announcement of his early ministry. It was the first priority of his own command. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. It was the first request of the model prayer. Jesus teaches how to pray. He said, all right, when you pray like this, pray like this. Thy kingdom come, your will be done because before anything else is established, it's God's throne that is established. So let's read our key verse from last night out loud. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Read it again. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. That wasn't was, that might be, that not, could happen if something starts and it's ahead of it. Folks, that's right now. Amen. It's right now, and so Jesus put kingdom first. We talked last night about how the kingdom is not a republic. Uh, You don't get a vote. He's a king, not a prime minister. He's a king, not a politician. He's a king, not a governor. He's king. As a matter of fact, the laws of the land emanate from who he is. There's no parliamentary procedure. There's no Congress to vote. We don't get a vote. It's based on who God is. Right is right because of who God is. Wrong is wrong because of who God is. It's also not a religion. Jesus didn't start one nor did he join one, nor did he advance one. matter of fact, religion is designed to replace kingdom. That's why Jesus had no, 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 no patience for the Pharisees. They were all about religion. They didn't care about a relationship. They didn't care about what Jesus was preaching. Only one Pharisee seemed to get it at all, and the very question he asked wasn't about any other thing except kingdom, and Nicodemus understood that was the most important question, and Jesus said, you're right, and in order to see that, You've got to be born from above. We talked about the methodologies last night, the goals and methodologies. When a kingdom wants to duplicate itself in another location, it's called colonization. God is out to colonize the earth with heaven. He wants to ship heaven's culture. That's his morals, his lifestyles, his intent, his choice, everything that is close to his heart, he wants to show up here. As a matter of fact, he wants it to show up as the waters cover the sea. He wants the earth to be filled with his glory. That's heaven's culture, his glory. That's how you sum it up. And how do we get that done? How does that happen? Well, thank God he didn't leave us alone. He didn't just give us a road map and say, here's how you get the glory of God in the earth. He didn't just say, hey, here's my agenda. Go do the best you can. He gave us the governor, the live inside the colony, the live inside of you and me, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to lead us in the ways of righteousness because the Holy Spirit is the person of God with delegated authority to enforce the laws of the kingdom in your life and mine. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. I don't know where we'd be without him. And then, of course, he doesn't colonize with the natives. You must be born again. We talked about that. And, of course, how prayer is the colon in colonization. It's how you get down to the bottom, what's in the head. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it, is, it is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus taught us to pray in order to see kingdom implementation in our life in our church, in our families, in our community, and even in our nation and our world. When you pray, you're partnering with the king for kingdom implementation and kingdom advancement. So we gave this definition, understanding that God's kingdom has two distinctives. To be in God's kingdom, you're a child of the king, that's a big deal. And not only that, that in God's kingdom, tyranny delivers freedom. The more you let God take over your life, the more free you become. Because God's rules are the way that God designed the world to work This was our definition, let's read it out loud. What is the kingdom of God? Let's read it. God's sovereign plan to be duly glorified by delivering the culture of heaven to earth, impacting the world with his will, his purpose, and his intention through the citizenry of his redeemed family who reflect his values, intent, nature, morality, and lifestyle. That's kingdom culture, and that's what we wanna talk about tonight. Kingdom culture, kingdom culture. You know, if you were to poll Baptists again and say, what is culture, you'd get a lot of different answers. And so I I wanna talk to you tonight about what is culture. To start, I'm gonna finish in a different place, but I wanna wanna make sure that we understand what culture is. And I think we all think we know what culture is, but we really don't know how to define it. And so so by the time you leave here tonight, you'll have a working definition of what culture is. And I don't mean just kingdom culture. I mean any kind of culture. Everything has a culture. There's business culture. There's athletic culture sports culture, there's family culture, there's, there's local culture, there's national culture, all kinds of culture. What is the definition of culture? When you're talking about culture, you're talking about three things. Number one, first of all, you're talking about values. Values. In other words, in a culture, in a shared culture, there are some things that are important to everyone and some things are important to some that are important to all because of that shared value system, that shared culture. Now, now when, when those things are are shared and those things are important at all, inevitably it shows up in language. In other words, now it may be their national language. For instance, America has a culture and we speak English and we share that language. Most cultures share a language. But sometimes it's the idiosyncrasies of the language, I'll give you an example of that in a minute, and invariably, eventually, it shows up in behavior. They do certain things in the culture, certain micro rituals or certain ways of responding and functioning based on the culture that they have, that is all driven back to the language and back rooted in the values. So you change the values, you get certain language, and you get certain behaviors. And so, for instance, uh, you, know, you can talk about culture all day long. I mean, I mean, like sports teams. Sports teams have culture. Matter of fact, I can just give you some language, and you'll know which team I'm talking about because the language reflects the culture. If I say, who dat, what team am I talking about? New Orleans Saints, New Orleans Saints. How about behavior, behavior? If I do this right here, don't even use words, just do this right here. Ooh. Ooh, that's right, <laughs> the Atlanta Braves, right? I mean, we, just, we, have certain, we have certain cultures inside of, businesses have culture, companies have culture. For instance, there's one, there's one company I can talk about because we're in church tonight and it's, it's a Christian company, uh, Chick-fil-A, you know what I mean? <laughs> Christian chicken, all right? Chick-fil-A, man. Right, listen, they've got strong values around customer service. I mean, listen, they're so dedicated to it that, that somebody told me that their kid worked at Chick-fil-A, and every now and then the manager will pull them off the register or pull them out of the lane and just say, hey, real quick, we're gonna go over mission and values. And it shows up in customer service, doesn't it? But it also shows up in the language. There are two words that you will hear Every time you go, get your chicken at Chick-fil-A, am I right? And you all know what it is, what is it? My pleasure, my pleasure. And doesn't that language also reflect the values? You really believe when they serve you with those smiles on their, their teenage faces that they are glad that you're in the restaurant and they are happy to serve. That's part of their behavior. As a matter of fact, I like going to Chick-fil-A, sometime I just make stuff up to see how I can get them homeschool kids to jump. <laughs> One time I ordered a Whopper, just to see if they'd go get it. They did, they did, went next door, got a Whopper. My pleasure. Families have culture, right? There are certain things that are distinctive to your family values, the way your family operates. And so as a result, you've got certain language. There are certain one-liners and words you can use at a family gathering that I wouldn't get if I was there unless I was on the inside of the family. Am I right? There are certain rituals in your family that even though grandma's dead and gone, there are certain things you do, the way you set the table, certain dishes you use only at that time of the year. Because what are you doing? You're passing on the values of your family through the language and the behavior. You're constantly reinforcing. It's a loop. It's a cycle. That's culture. And here's what I want you to understand. God when he saves a soul, he delivers heaven's culture into that life, and he does it exactly in the order and by the chart on this screen. Let me give you some examples. For instance, values. The Bible says that when we get saved, he takes out the heart of stone, and he puts in a heart of flesh. In other words, when you get saved, you don't merely get a cleansed heart from sin. The Bible says you get a brand new heart. And Let me tell you about that heart. It has values in it. That heart wants to serve Jesus. That heart wants to talk about him. That heart wants to read his word. That heart wants to do that. It it wants to fellowship with the Lord. It's a new heart, and it has new values as a result. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation, and with that comes a new love for the Lord. As a matter of fact, one of the first things you'll notice about someone who's genuinely saved is they all of a sudden love what they used to hate, and they hate what they used to love. Matter of fact, if you, just got, if you think you got saved and all of a sudden, and you still love what you used to love and you still hate what you used to hate, and that doesn't align with his heart, you didn't get saved. You need to get saved. Matter of fact, you didn't even get glorified fire insurance. You didn't get nothing, man. You gotta get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you get a new heart, you get a new perspective, you get a new paradigm because you get it all. You get a new love that he puts inside. Paul said, listen, Paul, who was public enemy number one of the church, Paul who met Jesus in a head-on collision on the way to Damascus, Paul who wanted to kill Christians yet now got saved, he said, there's a love that controls my life. There's a love that compels me. That love, that value, it influenced His language, it changed it. It influenced his behavior, it changed it. Not only that, but language. Jesus brings a new language. Yes, one of the first things that happens when some folk get saved is their mouth gets cleaned up. It just happens. But that's not what I'm talking about. For instance, one of them is this language, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, that's new language. Now why is that a big deal? Because in the early church, when Jesus is Lord came out as a slogan, it just wasn't some tagline behind a logo. It was the anti-slogan of the culture of the day. See, a whole bunch of guys that got in the ear of Caesar and said, hey, let's make it a law of the land that the Caesar has to be worshiped as a deity. So they put it out, Caesar is Lord. And by law, everybody had to say Caesar is Lord. And if you don't say Caesar is Lord, you go to jail or die. And the Christian said, we're not saying that. We're only gonna say, Jesus is Lord. And they said, look, all you gotta do is say it. Why don't you say it? Why don't you just say, Caesar is Lord? And the Christian said, because he ain't. <laughs> There's only one who can be Lord. There's only one who can sit in that seat. And Jesus is already in it. And Caesar's never gonna occupy it. And they said, you don't understand, boys and girls. Let's say Caesar is Lord real quick, because if you don't, you got lions in your future. And the Christian said, bring on the lions, because we're not gonna bow the knee Jesus is Lord. They could not change their language any more than they could undo their new heart because their language was tied to their values. Abba, language. Jesus introduced new language. He said, you get to talk to the king, but you don't have to call him king. You can call him king, but you also get to call him Abba. You also get to call him daddy, right? That's new language. That's kingdom language. Not only that, but... Stories. Stories are a part of the culture. In other words, we've got American stories, right? We got our American culture. So we, we, we hear the stories about 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 Paul Revere and, and, and George Washington and the cherry tree. And we've got these stories. Families have stories. Some of y'all get together every time for July 4th or Christmas time. And you tell those same old stories about mama and papa every single time. You tell those stories, they reinforce culture. Well, it's the same in glory, it's the same in kingdom. That's why Billy Graham when he went up and down the sawdust trail and eventually ended up in stadiums, he never changed his his game plan. Before he would preach and after the music, somebody would tell their story. Why? Their testimony. Because that, it reinforced culture. He wanted whoever came to listen to see heaven's culture on display. And so they would talk about how heaven's culture was in their life. This is who I was before I met Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. And now this is who I am after Jesus. Exhibit A, heaven's culture. Stories reinforce culture. Not only that, but worship. Worship is the language of heaven. Have you ever been on a mission trip to a country where nobody's speaking English? Man, you talk about stressed out. Let's say you're there on a two-week trip. Man, everybody's babbling around you. They're trying to speak English. It's broken. You can't understand it. I mean, good gracious, is there all you can do? Thank God for an interpreter. He goes home to sleep at night. Everybody goes into a blind panic. Man, what am I going to do? I can't talk to these people around me all the time. I mean, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You feel foreign. You feel out of socket. You feel like you do not belong. You are not in your home country, and primarily you feel that way because of the language. But then there's that Sunday when you get the opportunity to go worship with the nationals. And you walk into that church, maybe it's made out of cinder block and it's got limbs across the top with, 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 with tin and metal on top and, and it barely has any electricity if any at all and they, they begin to break out in their usual song. They begin to worship God in their lane. Here you are, you've been here a week and a half, you felt like a foreigner getting up in the morning at noon time, and when you went to bed, but for the first time since you got in that country, when they begin to worship God, you feel like you are with family you've known all your life. Why? Because language is the worship of heaven. It's an outflow of the values that we have. Listen, if you don't like worship, you ain't gonna like heaven, because it's everywhere for eternity. Language is First, worship is the language of heaven. But not only that, not only that, but behavior. The Bible says a lot about walking in his ways and, 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 and fulfilling his commands. See, what does he want? He wants the earth to be filled with his glory. So he talks about giving us a new heart. He talks about the language and that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth bring him praise and glory. But not only that, he even broke it down to the most minute detail. He said, whether therefore you eat Whether therefore you drink, do all to the glory of God. That's behavior. Jesus tied them together. He said, if you love me, that's values, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. That's language and behavior. By the way, that's one reason churches are losing the next generation. Because for many churches and many believers that sit in pews Sunday after Sunday, these three things do not align. Amen. In other words, the more we just talk the talk, but we live something different in behavior and language at home, we're betraying what our true values are. And so now there's a generation of teenager and gen, millennials and Gen Z, and they're saying, man, I'm looking for authenticity. So I'm going to be attracted and go to where these line up the most, even if it's pagan. So what does that mean? That means we need to examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith. Make sure that we are born again, filled with the Spirit of God, and so that our language will line up with the behavior, uh, and our behavior will line up with values, and language will line up with values, because that represents heaven's culture. And, and by the way, that, th- th- listen, this is how you know a culture is under attack. You can't change a culture without attacking in these three areas. That's why we know that the American traditional culture is currently under attack. There are some people that have gotten in positions in media, people that have gotten positions in academia that don't share traditional American values. And so as a result, they're bringing bringing foreign values or leftist values or socialist values or communistic values, and as a result, they're trying to change every other part of culture because they have a different value system. That is why they're trying to change our language, even our pronouns. Is not our language under attack. And you wanna talk about behavior, the behavior that we're seeing today didn't even have names 20 years ago. Well, Scott, you don't have to go get political. Listen, I'm not being political. I believe that we ought to defend American values and we ought to defend freedom, not because we're mixing Christianity and politics, but here's why. Because America was not formed as a kingdom. It was one of the first nations not rooted in a kingdom. It didn't have a king. It was, a, it was a new system of governance of the people, by the people, and for the people with a key distinction, religious freedom. It was the first society built wherein its laws were founded in Judeo-Christian values, found and rooted in the Word of God, which means the, it was the first society that, 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 a key, that the kingdom of God could grow and expand without governmental competition. It could, it could expand and breathe without governmental competition. You, you say, well, we weren't exactly all that. I mean we did have slaves in the beginning. Yes we did and that was awful. As a matter of fact they knew it was awful and they knew it didn't reflect kingdom and they knew it didn't reflect the heart of God. That's why they did not enshrine it in the constitution. And we became the first nation outside of England itself where all the fight, white where a whole bunch of white folk fought a whole bunch of other white folk to free all the black folk. In other words, if it hadn't been for Christianity, if it hadn't been for the word of God, if it hadn't been for our roots in our Christian values found in the word of God as rooted in the laws of the land, Pax Roma, Roma, then then, then listen to me, The, the slaves would have never been freed. They would have never been freed. Are you a Christian nationalist? No, I'm a kingdom person. And I believe we're salt and light. And I believe that a system that allows the kingdom to flourish is a better system. Especially if it reflects to some degree what God had on his mind in kingdom. That's why I want to defend our country from the tyrants who want to take our freedoms away. Y'all with me? It's ultimately to me about kingdom. Now, I wish that just by being saved just by virtue of having a brand new heart, that all this just naturally lined up. But there's a battle, isn't there? Every single day. Kingdom culture doesn't just flow through us. There are obstacles, there are battles, there's flesh. See, see, see You here's why. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in an earth suit. And your earth suit, your body is pre-programmed according to the sin nature, that's the software you're born with, to operate according to the world's ways, not God's ways. ways. The world's system's ways, not the kingdom ways. And so, just because you're saved, you still have this earthy, earth suit that that wants to kinda go a different direction. The Bible calls that flesh, and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that these do not do the things you wish. So, you have to go through a process of getting used to this. And that process of getting used to this is called sanctification. In other words, literally, even though you have a new heart, you're adopting new language, you're trying to get into new behavior, you literally have to get used to birthing and wearing Heaven's culture. It kind of reminds me of the first vehicle I ever drove as a kid with a license in Georgia. I inherited the family farm truck as my first vehicle, which happened to be a stick shift. You know what I'm talking about, stick shift? Man, you know what I'm talking about? Why in the world would you do that kind of cruelty to a brand new driver? Stick shift! It was awful. My goodness. I read a book, I read a verse in the book of Hezekiah that said, the first two weeks in hell is gonna be driving a stick shift. Man, I'm telling you, do you remember do you remember the first time you tried to drive a stick shift? Especially if you'd never driven before. I mean, good gracious, you got you got you got three pedals on the floor, you got this stick with all these markings on it like hieroglyphics or if they're rubbed off and then you got the steering wheel and you're trying to make this thing coordinate in such a way with the few brain cells you got if you can just just make enough coordination between these three pedals this stick and this steering wheel to make this machinery move without killing somebody son what voodoo magic is this first day you drove a stick shift you went home you took a three hour nap man you just wore out But you went back out of the next day and you drove it again. You went back the next day, you drove it again. You drove the next day and the next day. You know what? About four or five days into this thing, you're driving, and all of a sudden it dawns on you that you can actually drive the car and think about something else at the same time. You, You can drive the car and change the radio. You can drive the car and hold a conversation with the person who risked their life to ride with you today. You can drive the car and think about what you just ate or what you're going to eat. It's amazing, and you're, and all of a sudden you finally get to the place. You finally, listen to me. You finally get to the place that, that's called unconscious competence. It becomes second nature. That's what God's doing in you and me in the kingdom. At first, it's awkward. It's weird. We've never done this before, but He's trying to get us to the place of unconscious competence. So, so what does unconscious competence look like? Look, you, you know, you're, you know that, that kingdom culture is finally coming out in its fullness when we get to the place of unconscious competence when you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, not because you heard a sermon on it, but because it's an expression of who you are in kingdom. Where you give not because the pastor stood up and, and preached a sermon that guilted you into giving, but you give because it's your culture to give. You help because it's your culture to help you bless people because it's your culture to bless people, amen. It, it's, just, it's just unconscious competence. It's just who you are. That's when you know heaven's culture is starting to get traction. You've seen this, you've seen this. You ever been in a restaurant, you ever been in a restaurant and the girl working on you, you know she's, she's over there serving your table. You know she used to work at Chick-fil-A. Am I Right? Right? I mean, she's the best waitress in the restaurant. She can't wait, wait on you hand and foot enough, brings you everything, anticipates every need you have, and says, my pleasure, every other word. And she was homeschooled. I mean, you know. And Listen, she, she got Chick-fil-A culture so much, it's unconscious. She's not even thinking about it. You could drop her in any other restaurant, and she does all the things because it's unconscious, but she's competent. That's what God's trying to do in your life. That's what God's trying to do in my life. He's trying to get us to the place where kingdom is not just something we put on, but it's flowing from who we are in Jesus. And I love that. You know why? Because I believe kingdom culture is the best culture. It's better than any other culture. And what we're seeing today is a battle of the cultures. Matter of fact, I'd say this. Kingdom culture is more powerful than any other culture. When kingdom culture shows up, it starts to edge out the cultures that were in its place before it got there. I'll give you some examples. Kingdom culture is more powerful than cancel culture. Cancel culture, you know what I'm talking about? Cancel culture, y'all heard that term? You know the idea that you posted something on social media 20 years ago, you did not even believe or agree with yourself today, you changed your mind, but they found it and now you're gonna lose your job because what you posted wasn't politically correct you're going to get deplatformed you're not going to put another video on this platform you're not going to have another post over here you're going to lose your job and pay the price let me tell you something about cancel culture they don't use the same standard on themselves but bigger than that there is something called no grace no grace no second chances you're out that's cancel culture i'm going to tell you we're living in the midst of cancel culture you, you, you know cancel culture has gone too far when you have far-left liberals like Bill Maher making fun of it. We're, I mean, really. I mean, it's, what in the world has happened? I mean, when you say what is right and you get canceled, yet those who say what is wrong, it makes no sense. I mean, really, where are we living today? The fact of the matter is cancel culture. It's a high time that the church stands up and says, hey, have you been canceled? Hey, have you been cast out? Then you're the kind of person we're looking for. Come on over here. The water's fine. There's something called grace. There's something called a new beginning. There's something called the gospel. There's something called your past gets placed under the blood of Jesus, and you get resurrected brand new. Come on in. The water's fine. Amen. Listen, I love kingdom culture. It's better than cancel culture. It's the very message that a culture that's being victimized by cancel culture needs to hear. Not only that, but kingdom culture is better than covet culture. You don't have to be on social media alone before you realize that the mantra of the culture is basically get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Because for the last 50 years or 30 years, this culture's been taught that having is being. So if you wanna be more, you gotta have more. You gotta have more money in the bank. You gotta have more degrees behind your name. You gotta have more followers and likes and comments on social media. If you wanna be more, you're gonna have more. But I'm gonna tell you something, man. That is is chasing the wind and it will not satisfy. The Bible warns us about that ahead of time. It will not satisfy. Having is not being. As a matter of fact, being is more important than having. See, our culture doesn't believe the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 12, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. I ain't never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Naked we came in and naked we're going out and I'm telling you the only thing that matters about our life is who we are in Jesus. We say things like this, well, what's that man worth? Well, here's worth three billion dollars. Her mom is rich. She's worth $30 million. What's that guy worth? He's worth $1 billion. What's he worth? What's he worth? What kind of language is that about a human being? Last time I checked, the worth of someone or something is determined by the price willing to be paid for that person or thing. And I'm worth something, I know, because the greatest price that could ever be paid was paid for me. The blood of Jesus was paid for me. There is no greater price. That's your worth. That's your value. It's all in kingdom. That's not what the world says. The world says, man, you got to go out. Listen, J.D. Rockefeller died with a $700 million estate. J.D. Rockefeller died with a $700 million estate, and right before the end of his life, he wrote a book called A Sense of Incompleteness. Let me tell you something, man. There are millionaires who commit suicide. We heard about one a couple of years ago, a pageant winner who committed suicide. You know why? Because they go for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow only to find out there ain't no pot of gold and there ain't no rainbow and they're still searching and they spent all they had to find what they got and there's nothing there. It's all found in kingdom. It was a lie and a farce and a mirage the whole time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, these are the things of the world and the world is passing away. Now I know you can get on social media And you can find people that pursue those things, and man, it looks like they figured something out. It looks like they're so happy. It looks like their life is just working out just fine. No Jesus, no God, no Bible, no kingdom, just their own pursuits of money and fame. And and man, they got it. But I'm going to tell you, when you pick up the hood and look underneath, there's something else going on. See, it reminds me of the guy that was a city boy. He went to visit his family in the country. City slicker. Went to visit his family in the country. And... He drove out to the country place where they lived and he was driving down one of these long winding roads to get to their little homestead. He saw these big red barns on each side of the road and he noticed something about these barns on each side of the road. All of them had targets painted on the barns and there were bullet holes in the barns, but there wasn't one bullet hole outside the bullseyes on those targets. Not one bullet hole outside the Bullseye thought, man, these are the sharpest shooters in America. They don't miss. Well, he got to spending some time with them, got to asking questions, and he figured out what was going on. They weren't sharp shooters at all. What they do is, first they shoot a hole in the barn, then they go paint the target around it. Friend, I know you can look on television, you can look at celebrities, you can look on social media, and it seems like those have pursued life without God and have built up wealth and fame and, and degrees and all these things behind their name. And I'm telling you, you, think, you it looks like they figured it out. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, they're empty. At the end of the day, they don't have God. At the end of the day, they've missed their main purpose in life. At the end of the day, they're not great, they're not sharp shooters, they're just great painters. Covet culture will leave you high and dry. You, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, have you, any of you ever experienced this? It reminds me of trying to get out the exit at the end of the night in the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. You've you been there? Son, it's been a long, hot day. You're finally down there at Disney World. You're trying to, I mean, everybody's going the same direction. Everybody's cramming, trying to get on the train and get on the bus and get on the boat, man, just to get out of there. And and man, there's a kid screaming and crying, had 17 caffeine highs and 25 crashes. Every parent looks somebody like straight out of the Walking Dead live. I mean, it is a mass of human misery, man. The ironic thing is they all just came from the happiest place on earth. That's exactly what covet culture will do with all its promises. It'll pick you up, it'll spin you around, it'll drop you right back down into the emptiness of your own soul apart from God and leave you wanting. I'm telling you, kingdom culture is better than covet culture. Kingdom culture is better than cancel culture, covet culture... Kingdom culture is better than color culture. Amen. We're living in a time where they want to make much of color. It's the color of your skin that makes you who you are. It's the color of your skin that determines your worth. It's the color of your skin that determines whether you are a victim or an oppressor. It's the color of your skin. Let me tell you something, man. America doesn't have a skin problem. America has a sin problem. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. You need the kingdom. You need gospel. You need Jesus. And that's what Jesus does. He, he puts them all together. I mean, I mean we're, we're living in a time where, where, where they say, where, where they're giving up. It's almost like we're regressing to back to pre-civil rights, really. They're having segregated dormitories. They're having segregated graduations. That's not progress, that's Regress. That's old racism coming back into play that you judge a man not by the content of the character but by the color of the the skin. And academia perpetuates that thinking and media perpetuates that thinking. They complain there's a problem but they daily stoke the problem because they're saying that who you are is sized up by your skin. So they they just decided that that's just how it's gonna be. That's just, there's no hope, you know. It's just like oil and water. Colors don't mix. Oil and water. Have you ever tried to put oil and water together? I mean, you, you put oil and water together. You know, you can put blacks and whites in the same dorm. They're just going to separate. You can put Hispanics and, and Asians in the, same, in the same campus. They're just going to separate. It's like oil and water. You can stir them as hard as you want. You can blend them as hard as you can. But when you let go, oil goes its way and water goes way. that way. That's just how it is with the racists, and that's a lie. See, it's something that helped me to understand this whole thing from God's perspective. And what helped me understand from God's perspective was Tomato sandwiches. Yeah, tomato sandwiches. Y'all eat tomato sandwiches in Ohio? You know what I'm talking about? Tomato sandwiches? I hope y'all like tomato sandwiches up here like we do down there in Georgia. Because I I prayed and I asked God and he told me that tomato sandwiches are gonna be served at the marriage Supper of the Lamb, man. I'm talking about two fluffy pieces of bread. I'm talking about tomato, right? Big one off the vine, salt and pepper and mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, mayonnaise, I love mayonnaise. The tomato sandwich is not a tomato sandwich without mayonnaise. And you know one reason I love mayonnaise? is because mayonnaise is about kingdom. Mayonnaise speaks to what's on the screen right now. Mayonnaise is oil and water I'm getting along. How do you make mayonnaise? Oil and water. Now you've got to introduce a third property known as egg. The third property called egg comes in and a process is undertaken called emulsification. What is emulsification? Emulsification is when the egg comes in and grabs the oil, and the egg comes in and grabs the water, and it puts them together in a way they could not do themselves, leaving something that tastes better on the other side than the way it tasted before. Amen. That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. That's what the kingdom does. It grabs the black. It grabs the white. It grabs the yellow. It grabs the I don't know, and it puts them all as one man in Jesus. Amen. That's what it does. Listen, down where I live, whites are the minority in my county, Mean million people in my county, 40% white, 60% everything else. And our churches look like it. They look like it. And what I find is CNN has a narrative to perpetuate, and MSNBC has a narrative to perpetuate. That is why they don't bring their cameras up in our churches on Sunday even in the old KKK South. You know why? Because it cuts against the narrative. Because if they come into a lot of churches in our county, they'll find a whole lot of black folk sitting behind a, beside a whole lot of white folk, sitting beside a whole lot of Hispanic folk, and they're all praising the same Jesus, and they're all serving the same Lord, and they're all lifting up the same gospel. Amen. Because that's what the gospel does, and they don't want the solution. They don't want the solution. Folks, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. What we talk about when your pastor stands up here every Sunday and he opens the Word of God and he preaches, do you understand? Do you understand that he is preaching and delivering timeless principles that are inerrant from the Word of God that are literally, every Sunday, they are literally the solutions to every problem our society talks about day in and day out? Every problem. You ought to never be ashamed of Jesus. You ought to never be ashamed of your faith. You ought to never be ashamed to be indifferent. You know why? Because literally what you believe from the word of God is the way God designed the world to work and we have the answers they're looking for. The gospel solves every problem that they don't know how to solve. These are kingdom things. These are world changing things. I'm gonna give you another one. Kingdom culture is more powerful than kin culture. I went to the other side of the island on a different trip. Last night I told you I went to Haiti. A few years ago I went to Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic, same island, different country. Haiti, Dominican Republic. In Haiti they speak a form of French, why? They were colonized by France. In Dominican Republic, they speak Spanish. Why? Because they were colonized by Spain. Their culture is more Spanish in nature. Haitian culture is more French in nature. Listen, you got people on the island that were colonized by those other countries that have been separated for generations, but they're kin to each other. You go in their upline to their grandparents, same families. Listen, but they talk different. They live different. They value things different. They behave different. Why? Same blood, different culture. Let me tell you something. One of the first things a lot of folks realize when they get saved is that your kingdom family is now closer to you and you have more in common with than your blood family. Am I right? That's why you're not as welcome as some of your family get-togethers. That's why they talk about you behind your back. And you feel more at home with folks that you didn't grow up with than the ones you did. You share the same blood in your veins, but you got more kin with those in Christ. Kingdom culture is more potent than kin culture. Kingdom culture is better culture. Why? Because it's the king's culture. It's heaven's culture. I'm going to leave you with this. Let me give you some implications and applications in, in closing. Write these down. First of all, it's not changing. Give me the next slide. I'm using the force, but it's not working. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's my last slide, so you'll be able to just go through them if you need to. All right, first of all, independence is the greatest threat to kingdom in your life. Independence is the greatest threat to kingdom in your life. The number one temptation that Satan puts in front of you when your feet hit the floor in the morning and first thoughts pop in your noggin is, I can run this thing myself. I'm master of my own destiny. I'm the commander of this ship. I got this. Independence is the greatest threat to kingdom in your life. What happens in a colony when they declare independence? Well, the first thing that happens is the governor gets ejected and sent back home. And then they're cut off from the resources of the mother kingdom. Now are you saying, Scott, that if I declare independence or I function independently, that, that God's gonna that I'm gonna lose my salvation and the Holy Spirit's gonna leave my heart? No, not at all. But I'm saying in a colonization, that's what happens. And so as a result, you say you're saying basically I trust my resources, my wits my ability to assess my decisions more than I trust you. So independence becomes the greatest threat to kingdom in your life. Because you've got to understand and I've got to remember how kingdom functions. Kingdom is the, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom whereby the very resources that you use to build and advance the kingdom, even that for your own life, it comes from the king. I mean, the Bible says weird stuff like this. But him who minister, Peter said, minister with the strength God supplies. So that when he ministers, he does it with what God supplies so that in all things, all things, heaven's culture, God will receive the glory. Even the tithe. Listen, your tithe is not you giving some of your money to God. Your tithe is giving back to God what he supplied to you. He owns it all. It's just a token that he owns it all. Hear about the church one time that needed more parking. There was a church one time that needed more parking and they noticed that the business across the street was closed on Sunday and they were having a hard time fitting everybody in so they, they approached him and they said, listen, our church has grown. We could use more parking but since you're closed, can we park on your parking lot? And the business owner said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll let you do that. One condition, one caveat and they said, what? He said, one Sunday a year at random, unannounced, I'm gonna chain it off. Can't park on it. And they said, wait a minute, you're, you're saying we can park there. Yeah, you can park there. Uh, every Sunday, every Sunday. But you're saying one Sunday a year, just unannounced at random, we're gonna pull in, it's gonna be chained off. We can't park there. He said, exactly. Well, they said, why, why would you let us, if it's okay to park there every Sunday of the year, why would you chain it off one random Sunday of the year? He said, because I don't want you Baptists to forget who owns the parking lot. <laughs> Amen. Hey, listen, I'm glad God calls us to tithe because sometimes he needs to chain off 10% to remind us he owns 100%. It all comes from him. Even he works in us both to will and to do according to his good purpose. That is why declaring independence is the greatest threat to kingdom in your life. Now, let me keep moving. Give Give me number two. To the degree you devalue kingdom, you devalue God. So what do you mean? Well, if I, if I roll through a stop sign, I break a law called running a stop sign. I mean, and it's, you know, reasonable. I don't just run stop signs, but you know, sometimes you come to a stop sign that ought to be a yield sign. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? why do they make out a stop sign? It ought to be a yield sign. And so I just roll through that thing and I break the law. I, 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 I violate the policy of the land I don't feel that bad about it. Why? Because my relationship to this faceless impersonality known as government is not that real. So I barely think about it. But, when, but, 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 but because the laws of the land and kingdom, the policies of the kingdom emanate from who the king is, that he's issued his decrees based on what is right and what is wrong based on his own character. When I decide to say, God, I don't like your idea. I'm going to do something else that I'm literally not just breaking the law, I'm devaluing the king himself. So when God says, I want you to be chaste until marriage, I want you to save yourself sexually until marriage, and it's like, well, God, we're engaged, and we're going to get married in six months anyway, so we're going to go ahead and live together, we're going to do that anyway, and then God's like, wait a minute, that's not what I said do." You're devaluing the king. You're devaluing the God that you're gonna stand in front of an altar in front of your family and ask him to bless your union after you've been telling him you don't want his opinion for the last six months. It don't work like that. When you devalue the laws of the land, when you devalue the principles of the kingdom, you devalue the king. But on the flip side, listen, when you honor the principles, when you honor the precepts, when you obey, even when it don't make sense, You're honoring the king. That's why the old song that they taught us was right. It was all about kingdom. We just didn't know it. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And Why are you happy in Jesus when you trust and obey? Because you're saying that the kingdom principles are valuable because the king is valuable. What he says matters because he matters. If you love me, Jesus said, you keep my commandments. Next one. The next one is conflict is the inevitable result of prioritizing kingdom. There's a reason Peter kept saying, don't be surprised, that trouble is coming to you. Why? Because you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, but you're in another nation that doesn't honor God. Conflict is inevitable. Why? Because the kingdom is about government. And when somebody gets saved, God's government shows up in that life. And because it is about government, listen, every square inch of everywhere is governed by something. So when God's government comes into a life, comes into a home, comes into a family, it comes in conflict with whatever was, whatever was ruling before it got there. Y'all with me? So, so, so what does the Bible do? It spends a lot of time preparing his people for persecution. Because see, when we, when we step into a society as kingdom people, we become targets. Because if somebody ever comes in like they did in Cuba, if somebody ever comes in like they did in communist Russia, if they, somebody ever comes in like they did in China, the first group of people they begin to target are those that say, we won't bow to Caesar. The first people they begin to target is those who say, we live by a higher government than the man-made one that is over this nation right now. We will not bend. So they're the first ones that have to be taken out. Now, I hope that never happens in this country. I'm concerned about how we're trending, but I'll tell you this, at the end of the day, we're Christians before we're Americans. Matter of fact, you're a Christian before you're a lawyer or a teacher or a farmer or whatever you are. You say, I'm a lawyer. Well, you're a Christian lawyer. Your allegiance is to God before your allegiance is even to the state or your job or your boss. And when the inevitable happens, all of a sudden your, 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 your spiritual kingdom comes in conflict with lawyer kingdom, then you have to choose spiritual kingdom, God's kingdom, over lawyer kingdom, even if it means losing your job. But the good news is because his throne is established and his kingdom rules over all, that if you take a stand for his kingdom against lawyer kingdom and you lose your job, not only will God help you find the next job, he'll also supply your needs in the meantime. Amen. Because when you seek first the kingdom of God... All these things shall be added. So you're free to seek first his kingdom. Conflict is the inevitable result of kingdom. Next one kingdom is more than what you do, it's who you are. So you don't get saved and then go do kingdom stuff. You do, you do what you do because you're a citizen of the king, the kingdom, and you're a child of the king. That's why the Bible never says go do witnessing. It says, "When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. The word of God always emphasizes identity. Know who you are in Christ. You're children of God. You're accepted in the beloved, you're adopted into the family. You are, you are, you are. That's identity, identity, identity. The me, I see is the me, ID. It's the me I'll be. Identity determines activity. and birth determines identity. When you were being born, your dad wouldn't stand outside the room going. I hope it's a human. (laughs) That was settled. And so listen, you've been given a spiritual birth. So one nature births of its own nature. You are born again of the Spirit of God. You're a spiritual person. You're a kingdom person. So now your new identity determines your daily activity. It is not something you do. It is who you are, but you've got to see it that way. Why? Because the me I see is the me I'll be. If I didn't see myself as a mildly reformed version of who I used to be before Jesus that happens to have eternal fire insurance, then I'll live my life that way. But if I see myself as a new creation, if I see myself as having a new heart, if I see myself as a citizen of the the kingdom of heaven before I'm a citizen of anywhere else, that will run my life based on identity. One of the best books that came out in the last year was or two years was Atomic Habits by James Clear. Atomic Habits, great book on forming new habits. Here's the interesting thing one of the basic synopsis of, 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 of what it was trying to communicate is identity. They gave, they gave, they gave three different groups, identity-based, or lack thereof, tests. People that said they wanted to exercise, they put a Post-it note on their desk. For one group, the Post-it note said, you should exercise today. For another group, it said, you should not miss your exercise today. For the last group, they put a Post-it note that says, I'm not the type of person, I'm not a person, I'm not a person who misses exercise. The identity-based group exercised five times more than the other groups because it wasn't about activity, it was about identity. I'm not a person who misses exercise. When you go to the Word of God, you see it's always about identity, 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 new creature, new creature, new creature, new heart, new heart, new heart, children of God, children of the King, who you are, a kingdom person, why? Because who you are, determines what you do. Now let me give you another one, and I'm done. Number five, the kingdom, not your estimation, is the measure of what's possible in your life. The kingdom, its resources, the kingdom, its supplies, the kingdom, Its vision and possibilities and capabilities are the, now your estimation, is the measure of what's possible in your life. I drive a Toyota RAV4. And I noticed when I was driving to a a, a place to preach, I was on like a three-hour road trip, I noticed that on the speedometer, as I was driving and watching The Needle, You know, sometimes it was at 55, sometimes it was at 65, sometimes it was at none of your business. But I noticed that the register went all the way up to 140 miles an hour. I got to thinking to myself, why would the manufacturer, knowing what the speed limit is, put on the register that it possible... 140 miles an hour. A lot of female drivers in this room have not noticed that about your car. Every man in here has not only noticed it, he has taken it as a challenge from the manufacturer to see if it's true. 140 miles an hour, we're about to find out. What's happening? The manufacturer is trying to send you a message that the potential speed of this vehicle is not determined by your average speed on any given day as the driver. The potential speed of this vehicle is not determined by how fast you've driven in the past. The potential speed of this car is determined by the incredible amount of intellect, in, in insight and design that the manufacturer baked into the vehicle that he knows it can do even if you never even it. See, some of you think your Christian life only goes to 55 miles an hour. And every time God puts a, something in front of you to attempt, you judge it by what you've tried before and how much you can assess it or how it works out on paper. And God is trying to say, put on kingdom glasses. I want you to see what's possible. What is possible is not determined by your training. It's not determined by how many degrees are behind your name or lack thereof or how much money you've been able to put in the bank or how talented you feel or adequate or what you've done in ministry before. What is possible in your life is determined by the advancement and the expansion and the expanse itself and the possibilities and resources of the kingdom of God and the king who runs it all. And I have to remind myself of this. Even as a preacher, but I've got I've got stories of when God did that. I I remember a time in my life where I've seen kingdom come in conflict, like kingdom versus kingdom, God's kingdom. I remember the year was 1999, and my daughter was going to be born at the end of May, our first and only child, and I had six weeks of camp to preach, and I was faced with a dilemma. My daughter's about to come into this world. We lived in Tennessee at the time. We had a little house there that we had bought because we wanted to start the baby's life in a house before we moved on to the motor home later, which we did. But at the time, we had this little house. Our family was nowhere around, and they lived four and a half hours away, and Scarlett's parents weren't involved at all. My parents were a long way away. Here's this baby. She's coming. Now, I'm face, I got six weeks of camp back-to-back to, back to preach for Inquest Ministries. And, I'm, and here's a new baby, and I've got, I, I, I'm thinking about this. Now now, what am I supposed to do? The baby's gonna be born one week and the very next week I'm taking a brand newborn and my wife are gonna stay in a roach infested dorm on a campus somewhere while I preach camp all summer? How's that gonna work? Or, or if I just call them up and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Listen, not only were we living love offering to love offering, honorary to honorary, check to check, I couldn't lose that much camp in the summer and I'm just saying, well, I gotta be a faithful husband, a faithful dad. I need to be home with my newborn and my wife and help. Kingdom was in conflict. Good dad, present father and husband, preacher of the gospel, provider. What in the world? Well, inquest had not determined where they were gonna have camp. At the time, we lived in Monroe Monroe County, Madisonville, Tennessee, a town of 4,000 people, about 40 miles south of Knoxville. That's where we lived, small town. And I'd preached for inquest before, but they had outgrown the last place that they rented for camp, and they were trying to find a new place to rent. For camp six weeks of camp in the summer one day the owner calls us about three weeks before my baby was going to be born and he says Scott uh how you doing I told him I said new baby on the way yeah yeah we kind of chit-chatted a minute he goes listen the reason I'm calling is I'm letting you and the other speakers know that we've got a place to have camp this summer finally it's great yeah as a matter of fact matter of fact uh it's a great place. It's got it's got it's got it's a it's a it's a Methodist college that is closed in the summertime. No classes. They got ball fields. They got they got they got a cafeteria. They got dormitories the kids can stay in. They got a chapel where you'll be preaching the gospel every night. It's great. And I said, "Man, that's great." He said, "Don't you live in Tennessee?" I said, "Yeah, we we moved here a few years ago. A couple years ago." He said, "Okay. Well, I think th- this place now this place is in Tennessee." I said, "Really?" I said, said, where's the camp gonna be, Steve? And he said, Hiawassee College. When Steve said Hiawassee College, I went into a Pentecostal fit. He's wondering why I'm yelling and screaming and jumping around. He had no idea that this little house we bought in Madisonville, Tennessee, in a town of 4,000 people, where my baby was gonna be born and brought home to, that Hiawassee College, by the odometer in my car, was exactly one mile from my driveway. One mile, I lived on the edge of Madisonville, Tennessee in a row of houses and I'd get in my car after my baby was born and I would drive one mile between two cow pastures, pull up into the parking lot of High College surrounded by three cow pastures and I would preach the gospel every night and go home and change diapers and sleep in my own bed. Woo, praise Jesus. Only God can do that, only God can do that. I'm telling you, listen, kingdom, not your estimation, not your best guess, not what even you can work out with your own hands. Not your estimation is, is, is the measure of what's possible in your life. When we get a kingdom vision, I'm telling you, no eye has seen nor ear has heard what God can do through the lives of those who love him and serve him. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world and he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything we could ask or imagine and he'll do it again and again and again and again till Jesus comes if we'll just trust and obey. Amen. Let's stand together all over the room.